Good morning, everyone. Today we'll be reading Luke chapter 16, which can be found on page 1593 of the Pew Bible. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So we called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, 
between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Thanks, Libby. Hey, everyone. It's nice to be back to the Western Hemisphere. I was in a large Asian country for 11 days that has a pointy bottom and escaped my two braces with the police and deportation and had a great time with my daughter who got to hold a, the severed head of a swordfish at one point. We had a good time. So um, glad to be back. If you're working through the devotional with this series, Entrusted, we're going to be in week 10 this week and go back to week 9 next week. Lloyd's going to be preaching chapter 15 next week. He and I had to switch because of India travel, and um, so I'm taking 16. We've been, um, we've been working through these chapters in Luke, focusing on the fact that um, what we are doing, if we've become Christians, is, can be summed up in this idea called stewardship, right? If you look at the first line of this chapter, it says, Jesus said this to his disciples. So this chapter, the chapter 4, chapter 15, is addressed to everyone. It says the, the religious people and the prostitutes and the everybody who's gathered around, he, chapter 15 is for everyone. So God's invitation to everyone to come to him. And that the people who already think they've come to him, to deal with the fact that people they don't like are also invited to come to him. That chapter is for everybody. This chapter is specifically directed towards Jesus' disciples. And the main character in this passage that is meant to embody or teach us as his disciples is this guy who's a steward or in the NIV a manager. Um, I've used the word steward throughout this um, series because a steward is different than a manager. Manager can mean a lot of different things. A steward is somebody who's been given a trust— some scope of authority. In England, it used to be like an estate, and they didn't own it at all. They had zero ownership, but they had 100% of the authority to decide what was going to be done within their trust. And that's what a Christian essentially is doing in their life. That we're—right now, what we're doing is we're being stewards. There is some trust that has been given us, which is our life and the things in it. In the ultimate sense, we don't own it. God owns it. But also, in the ultimate sense, he has told us to manage what he's put in our hands. We have 100% of the authority necessary to make the decisions we need to make in the trust that God has given us. Now, it's important to recognize that stewardship, being a steward, is not your whole identity in Jesus. Right? If you think that it's your whole identity in Jesus, then you'll get back into a works righteousness where you feel like you have to perform, and then if you're really great, then God will love you, and that's really not what the Bible teaches at all. Scripture teaches that just like God said to Jesus in the first chapters of Luke, this is my beloved Son over whom I am well pleased or in whom I delight. 
The book of Colossians says that all of the fullness of God is in Christ. And in Christ, in his death and resurrection, we have come into union with him, and we experience all the fullness of Christ. Christ's standing, his calling, his righteousness, that in Christ, you are God's beloved son or daughter in whom he delights. Even if you have been a sucky steward. Okay? He delights over you. He loves you. He is transforming you and remaking the image of God that you were created to bear. He is with you in your union with Christ. Christ promises the indwelling of his spirit. He is with you. You are never alone. And within a certain scope of things he's entrusted to you, he's even given you his authority. It says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations. That is, out of his authority, he's given you his authority. That's your identity. But the thing is, is that if you've been saved in that way, right, the question is, okay, what have I been saved for? I'm still here. What am I here to do? Right? And you're not here to do something so that God will love you. You're here to do something because in Christ, you are here to be Christ to his creation. Does that make sense? And to live for its flourishing and growth and being brought back to him and be reunited with him. Now, in this passage, what Jesus is trying to help us understand is that in order for us to be a steward, you, we have to get the first the very first step of stewardship, right? What a steward is. And a steward is somebody who leverages worldly wealth into eternal friendships. Okay, that's maybe a little bit different language than I've used other weeks, and maybe language you're not particularly used to, but that's exactly the language Jesus uses in this chapter. That a steward is somebody who leverages worldly wealth into eternal friendships. That's what he says in verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone— you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Okay, so we're going to look at three things because that's what preachers do. Okay, um, the, and the first just is that that's what a steward is. A steward leverages wealth. That's all they ever do. They have some kind of wealth. There's something in their hands. There's something they've been entrusted with, and their job is to leverage it for more. Now, one of the ways that it's interesting, so for years, I mean literally hundreds of years, um, skeptics and cynics have been attacking this particular parable as the most dishonest and the most morally repugnant um, parable of Jesus other than the one where the fig tree gets cursed. Um, They love to pick on this one because what it looks like at first reading is that there's this guy who's really dishonest, right? He's He's basically stealing from his employer. He gets caught. He steals more from his employer. And then the employer says, you're fantastic. And then Jesus says, be more like that guy. Right? And it like, people are like, look, Jesus is like, he's telling people to be dishonest. It's like, he believes the ends justify the means, right? And that's, that's really not the right way to interpret the parable. When you, when you interpret um, narratives— It's important to understand how stories are told and how stories get their meaning, okay? This is a story that Jesus is telling, and you're supposed to track the setting, characters, conflict, escalation, climax, and resolution, right? Like, stories are told in a certain way, and the 
the climax of the story is actually, in this one, it's actually more in the resolution. And the reason why it's more in the resolution is because something happens that is literally the absolute opposite of what we expect. And whenever something happens in a story, especially a short story, especially a moral story, when something happens that you absolutely don't expect for moral reasons, that's the point. Okay? Charles Simeon said it this way. Um, the master in this story does not commend the steward for his dishonesty. He commends him for his ingenuity. Let me tell the story a little bit of a different way. Imagine there's a dad and he has a son named Jake who's 17. He's a senior. And every time somebody asks Jake if he's going to college, he says yes. He's from an educated family. He goes to one of the high schools that send most of their kids to college, right? He's a senior. Everybody assumes he's going to college. But here's what Jake's dad knows. He hasn't even scheduled to take his ACTs yet. He's got two senior projects that he has to finish to graduate, neither of which are done. He has not visited a college yet, and he hasn't sent out one application, okay? And he's done essentially nothing necessary to go to college, but he's really enjoying his senior year. And so his dad basically takes him aside and says, Jake, listen, you're done, okay? Handed your magic rectangle, no internet, no phone, no friends, no going out, you're going to school, you're coming home, no sports, no nothing until you've done what's necessary to get into at least one relatively mediocre college, right? And his, his son realizes, like, Jake realizes, there's no sense in arguing with his dad on this. He's livid. He's had this coming for months. And so he goes up to his room and he realizes that there's a party he's been wanting to go to for like two months that's happening in two nights. And he's like, there's no way I'm going to get my dad to let me to go to this party. And so he decides he's going to go, though, right? And so he starts figuring out what he's got to do to go. And so he, he thinks, okay, so one, I've got to get my dad in a good mood or he's going to catch me no matter what. So I'm going to study both nights. I'm going to try to complete one of the projects I don't have done. And I'm going to at least download and print out at least one college application. And then I'm going to—I have a buddy whose mom owns a retail clothing store. I'm going to get a real mannequin to stuff my bed with. So if my dad looks in, he'll see like the actual contour of a human body. And then I'm going to get—rig something to pull the little piece of wood on our sliding door out so I can come in the back door. But then when my dad checks the doors at night, they'll all be locked and so on. There's like a whole bunch of these things, right? And so the, the night comes and he studies before he goes. His dad is really pleased with him. He's like, I'm going to turn in early, dad. His dad's like, I'm so proud of you, son. And like, he, you know, they, all, they go to bed and then he sneaks out. He goes to the party. He sees all the girls he was hoping to see. He has a great time. He comes home. It's like three in the morning. His little deal with the sliding door works. He gets inside. He's walking through the kitchen and he can see the shape of a head in the living room above the chair, you know? And he knows his dad is sitting there, and he knows his dad is awake, and he knows that he's busted, and he's not sure if he has a shotgun, and he's going to kill him or not, <laughs> right? And so, but in the dark, his eyes are kind of like adjusting to the darkness, and he sees his, his dad's hands go like this, right? And he goes. <laughs> he stands up, he walks over to him, and he's got this look in his eye like, his eyes say, I'm going to rip your head off. But there's a little bit of a grin on his mouth. He gets right up in his face, clapping like this. Finally. Finally! I, like, I knew you could do this. I knew you could decide there was something in the future that you wanted, and that there were a number of things you had to do to get there. 
and that you would have the gumption and the desire to put them together and to order them and to overcome any obstacle and to think about what you would need and to enlist people to help you so that you could get from here to there. Son, if you do one twentieth of what you did to try to sneak out tonight to get into college, you will get in almost any college you try to get into. Now go to bed and we'll talk about your punishment in the morning. Right, you see, um, the point of this parable is to recognize that the master was so incensed that his steward was wasting his possessions. Right, the whole point of a steward is to increase your possessions. And the steward is wasting his possessions. That is so insane that anything else is amazing. Right? And so he— He's so incensed at the wasting of his money that he actually appreciates his steward's ingenious dishonesty because it's less infuriating than mindless waste. Right? Like, he's not investing for the master, but he's—at least he's investing for someone. You see, there's a certain level of dereliction of duty, of completely misunderstanding who you are and what you're supposed to be doing, that is so incredibly infuriating that if you do the right thing wrong, it feels better for the person who's watching you. And so the master in this parable isn't saying it's good that this guy is dishonest. He's not saying that it's good that he's stealing from him. But right at the morning where we expect him to pull out a sword and to lop off his head, the moment we expect this guy to get everything that's coming to him, for him to go to jail and to knock it out till he's paid the last penny, like right at that moment, Jesus flips the story and he brings in this guy who's clearly caught this guy right? Because apparently he's got spies, okay? He found out he was wasting his money. He found out this was happening. He comes in, and he says, great job. At least before you leave, you've learned what a steward is. At least you've made an investment for once in your life. Now give me the books <laughs> and get out, right? And so the point is, the whole idea here is the reason why people attack this parable is because—not because Jesus is affirming dishonesty. It's because Jesus is trying to use an incredibly powerful literary device in the story because he's trying to make a very dramatic point. What you should get from this is not that Jesus is in favor of dishonesty. What you should get from this is Jesus is trying to make a point in as loud a way as he possibly can to get through all of the ways that you would ignore it, to get through all the ways you would think you already know this idea— He's telling it in a way that's supposed to shatter all of that so that you'll actually hear the idea. And what he says is basically, listen, people who do not believe in eternity, people who do not believe in a kingdom of God, people who believe that this life is all there is, are always working earnestly and uniformly and ingeniously to make further wealth for themselves. Just look around at everybody around you. They're trying to win friends and influence people. They're trying to like— claw their way up the jobs. They're trying to get the promotion. They're trying to do things to have a better transcript and to have a better resume. And they're, they're trying to know people and, and flatter people so that they can open doors for them. They're doing everything possible to turn wealth they have now into more wealth later, into whatever position they have now, into a better position later. Everybody is doing that in the entire human race. They do it diligently. They do it ingeniously. They do it constantly. And he says, but the people of the light who believe in eternity don't. 
they, they don't live with all, they, all that they have in this world to serve and leverage that for eternal wealth. And it's infuriating. It's making me crazy. Right? Jesus is saying, it's so, it's so obvious, and it's so normal, and it's so constant that I feel like that owner felt. That when his subordinate at least cheated him, he was at least cheating him in the right direction. And Jesus is saying, this is how I feel, you guys. This is how I feel. You're my people, and I love you, and you have all this wealth, this health, and time, and privacy, and space, and money, and education, and all this human capital, and your beautiful, lovely, powerful, emotionally, like, relatively healthy people. And you're really just going through your life. And if you're making investments that are ingenious, most of it is so you can have more money or a nicer boat or hold on to your job. And it's so rare that, that one of my people, one of the people of the light, would really leverage all they have of their worldly wealth to transfer that wealth into eternal dwellings. It's so rare, and it drives me crazy. And that's the point he's making. Does that, does that shoe fit you? Because it fits basically every human being is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that's normal, not just normal humanity, that's normal believer. The normal disciple of Jesus doesn't really know they're a steward or certainly doesn't behave like they're a steward. And yet you have so much wealth that's that you, you can't, you can't keep in its present form, right? The second thing, implication here is, is that um, spiritual stewards leverage passing wealth for enduring wealth, right? P people say, you've heard people say all the time, well, you can't take it with you, right? And that's, that's only partially true. You basically can take it with you. You just can't take it with you in the form that it's in right now. Not only can you take every dime of wealth that you have with you, you can take every bit of your good-lookingness, you can take every bit of your time and its value between now and your death, you can take every bit of what can be purchased with every different kind of capital and wealth that you have in your life, you can take every tiny bit of that with you. You thought you knew you were going to hear that at church this morning, didn't you? You just can't take any of it with you in the form that it's in right now. Right? Jesus said, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So if you look at this parable carefully, there's three parallels between the steward in the parable, in the parable and us. The first is that no wealth can be kept in its current form. He's losing his job. Whatever his commissions are, whatever part of that wealth is his, whatever his salary is, whatever wealth he can access in his present job, that is going to end very soon. He's got a few hours or a couple of days to turn in his books, and he's out, okay? He cannot keep the wealth from his current position, and what Jesus is saying is neither can you. Neither can we. We're in this world, and we're going to die to this world physically, 
very soon we're going to be dead, and all of the wealth that we have that has not been transferred somehow is going to be lost, right? The second thing is, is that keeping wealth means that it must be transferred into human capital. Okay, you see, the only people, the only thing that's going to be a carrier of wealth into the kingdom of God are the things that God is redeeming eternally in the kingdom of God, and the only thing that is being redeemed that way are humans, right? People who bear the image of God, that God is redeeming in Christ, those people are going to go into the eternal kingdom, and anything invested in them carries forward in them. Okay? And so the only way you can maintain any of the wealth that you have at all is for you to transfer it into whatever form it's in right now into the form of a human person. So that it's part of their being and part of their story. And so when they go into eternity, that wealth is in them. Right? Think about this. Banks can't repossess people who love you. Right? They can't do it. So like the master, he can come back and he can be like, you're giving away bushels of grain and all this olive oil. I'm going to get it back. But he can't get any of it back because it changed form. Now it's in this guy who likes the manager. He, in his heart, he's happy about him and he feels devoted to him as a friend. How do you financially repossess that? Right? You, you can't. It's a, it's, it's, com it's a completely unrepossessable form of wealth. It's been transferred from physical capital that you can repossess into human capital, which you can't, right? And you see, even death can't repossess human capital that is in redeemed people. In fact, the whole New Testament argues that even human capital that is put into unredeemed people is still credited by God and can't be repossessed. And then the third thing is, is that there's only a very short time to transfer this wealth. Okay? This guy has to give an account. He only has as long in his office as he has to turn over the books. He has to get the papers in order, and then he's got to hand them over. That could be a couple of hours, might be a couple of days, depending on how big or how complicated this estate is. And that's all the time he has to transfer the wealth. Similarly, in light of eternity, however many years you have left, or hours you have left, that's how long you've got to transfer the wealth. And then you're done. Your, your physical wealth will have entirely expired. Your worldly wealth is over. And the only amount of time you have to transfer that wealth exists right now. Do you understand? And those are the three ways Jesus is saying you've got to transfer it. Now, that it's, it's important to recognize that Jesus says, here's what you're doing. You're taking your worldly wealth and you're making friends plural for yourself. So he's not saying— He's not saying you take your wealth and you make a friend of God. He's not actually saying that. That would be the normal theological thing we would say. He's saying friends, plural, and he seems to be referring to individual people, right? Which is not the, not the natural point. We, we generally think we do good things. We invest in God's kingdom. Jesus sees it, and then Jesus credits us with whatever he wants to. But in this case, the picture Jesus is saying, he says, take what you have, Invest it in people so that they will love you in the kingdom of God. Right? Which is a little bit of a different idea. That you want to invest your wealth in the goodwill of people who will be in heaven and be wealthy in heaven so that they will welcome you in heaven too in the kingdom of God. Which is not how we normally think about this. So the question is, who are these friends? And Luke basically tell, gives us two options, right? The poor and the lost. 
Now you might say, well, Nick, how do you know that? It sounds like you're pulling that in from somewhere. I am pulling it in from somewhere. The two pages before and the page following. Right? In chapters 14 and 15, Jesus focuses on— in chapter 14, he focuses on the including of the poor. Right? There's this great banquet— Right? And all these people who were not invited get brought in, and all of them celebrate together. And Jesus says to one of the Pharisees when he goes to a party, and all these important people are there, he says, listen, you don't invite people like us. Go out and find the crazy people, and the blind people, and the lame people, and the poor people, and invite them to your party. Because here's the thing about them. They can't do anything for you. They'll never be able to repay you. They're never going to get you a promotion. They're never going to like— give you a bunch of money when you're short. They're never going to help you. And because they can't ever help you, you'll be rewarded in the kingdom of God. So Jesus explicitly says there that the poor are people we should look to make friends with for eternal dwellings. I'll get to why that is in just a minute. The second group is the lost. That is, those who are wandering, those who are not close to God, people who are far from God. And chapter 15 is all about that. Lloyd will preach about it next week. You've got the lost sheep— where the shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one and they celebrate together the lost coin and the lost son. And Jesus tells that whole parable to say that there is so much rejoicing in heaven over one person who is lost from him, who's brought back. Does that make sense? But in the first two stories, there is a heavy emphasis on looking for the lost thing. In the third story, the emphasis is on being happy that the lost son is found. It's a different emphasis. But in the first two, it says, the shepherd leaves the 99 to go find the one. In the story of the coins, the woman sweeps her whole house, cleans everything up to find the one coin that she had lost. In the first two, the emphasis is on the human actor seeking and seeking and seeking and seeking to find. That is, that is compromising their wealth, especially in the case of the shepherd, so that they can find the thing that was lost, so that they can rejoice and be happy with heaven. And where this also comes explicitly clear is in the end of chapter 16, you've got the story of Lazarus and the rich man, right? And so you have a man who's living in luxury every day, and you have a guy that's so poor that his, his means of cleaning his legs is dogs licking him, okay? It's a bit of a disparity, right? And Luke is, at this point, he's not trying to say, are you giving enough? Are you too rich? Are you too poor? He's intentionally making so broad a difference between the rich man and the poor man that we don't identify with either one of them, right? Then Lazarus dies, and the rich man dies, and the rich man is in Hades, and he's being tormented, and Lazarus is at Abraham's side, and, and, the, and the rich man makes two requests. The first is for comfort, and he asks Lazarus, he asks Abraham to make Lazarus just dip his finger in the water and touch his tongue with it because he's tormented. And Abraham refers to poverty. And he says, no, 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 this is, that's not how it works. When you were in life and you were rich, you had your comfort. And in death, Lazarus is comforted and you're tormented. Now it is assumed in the parable that the rich man was unbelieving because of his second request. So we're not to take from this that rich people who don't give enough are going to hell. What we are to take from this is, is that that is one dynamic that we have to pay attention to. That God has comforted those with wealth, and there are people in this world who are not comforted, and heaven or the kingdom of God is a place of comforting. And if you want to transfer some of your comfort to the future, 
you give some of your comfort to those who are not comforted. And so make friends for yourself in eternal dwellings. And then the second is he says, Father Abraham, would you please tell, please send Lazarus back to my brothers who are still alive to tell them to repent. And Lazarus says, look, they've got everything they need to repent. They've got the Torah. They've got the prophets. They have all kinds of truth. And, and the rich man says, they won't, but they won't. But if Lazarus comes back from the dead, they'll believe. And he says, that's, that's not going to happen. One, because we don't do that. But secondly, because if they won't believe the truth, they won't believe in apparitions. You, you, you think that they'll believe it? No, if they don't believe the truth, they don't want to believe the truth. And even if someone comes back from the dead, they won't believe. Right? And what is being implicitly stated here, if you put together chapters 15 and 16, is the only people who can go to someone and press on them the truth of the law and the prophets, or now the truth of the gospel, are those who are living. Those who go out of their way to go and help people come in while they're still alive so that they won't end up in a place of torment. And those who would have been in a place of torment and aren't, because we invest in them, they will remember that in eternity. Eternity is a place where everything is rightly valued, including everything that was ever done in this life on our behalf. And if somebody takes us from being lost to being found, we will be eternally grateful to them. And we will welcome them gladly into whatever habitations God gives to us. Without hesitation. So Jesus is saying, listen, use all of your wealth to make friends for yourself with these two groups of people. Because they will have eternal dwellings and you will want to be welcomed into them. Whatever yours is. Just did that. Okay, so we just did that. Okay. So the third thing is this, is that kingdom investment proves spiritual integrity. This is a little bit more complicated point, and I really don't have that much time to tell you. But you might be asking, but Nick, what about just making friends with God? I mean, where is God in this? I mean, this sounds so self-focused. Well, it is a little bit self-focused in that that's what Jesus is doing in this parable. He's trying to awaken us to a certain kind of divinely focused self-interest, right? Human beings don't really have the capacity to not be self-interested. We care about our existence, and we care that our existence would be good. And the Bible actually never tells us we shouldn't be—we shouldn't care about ourselves, okay? It's not—it doesn't function that way. What it says is that if you want to care about yourself rightly— you need to align your well-being with what's true and good. And then your well-being isn't parasitic on anybody else's well-being. Your well-being nourishes other people's well-being, and more people are well together, and more people are blessed together. And so you—it's perfectly right. In fact, you must, and you can't not want to pursue your future well-being. But you have to pursue it in line with the truth. So that instead of destroying other people's well-being so you can steal from for yourself, your well-being produces flourishing for others. And so all are blessed together. That's the ethic of the kingdom of God. Love produces more so that there's an abundance. Right? And so Jesus says right after the parable, he says, listen, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. 
So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy in some, with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And he never really says who in the kingdom of God he's referring to. Whether it's people you ought to make friends with, whether it's God himself, or whether it's both, he doesn't say. But what he says is, is that— and he says this partly so you would never—you wouldn't misunderstand what the parable is about. Because in this part he says, trustworthiness is at the very center of everything. So is he, com- is he commending the dishonest servant for his dishonesty? No, because in verse 12, 10 through 12, he explicitly says that trustworthiness is fundamental. Right? And what he's saying is, he's saying, our investment, our kingdom investment, is what demonstrates or proves our trustworthiness or our spiritual integrity. You see, in an in immature spiritual sense, we want to believe that if we do what we're supposed to do and we don't lie, that like we're doing what we're supposed to do, and that's maturity. If I just, if I just do what I'm supposed to do, that's maturity. That is not maturity in God's sight. It's not enough just to be a good slave. We're supposed to be virtuous, free image bearers that God can put great trusts under our supervision and we will leverage them for great things. Right? You you were not made to simply be a slave. You were made to be an investor, a manager, a leverager, a steward. And so we think maybe honesty is enough. What if I I just tell the truth that's enough? That's not enough. No, what God really wants from us is integrity, which is not just telling the truth. It's that all of our life is one thing, right? Integrity is built off the word integer, right? A single value. A life with integrity is a life where all the things in that life flow together and they mean the same thing. It's all united in one thing. It's not divided. And you see, the most fundamental lack of integrity Jesus predicts in human beings is that we love our worldly wealth in competition with our love for Jesus in his kingdom. And whenever the love of money comes in, right, it divides our integrity because we're not about one thing. We're about both increasing our wealth here and increasing our wealth there. You, you really aren't going to be able to leverage for both of those things. What you'll do is you'll say you're leveraging for eternity, but you'll really spend most of your time and effort leveraging for more of your life here. Right? And he, so that's why he says, listen, no servant can love two masters. Either he'll love one and despise the other. Nobody can love both God and mammon, or it's often translated money. Now you might say, well, Nick, I, I don't know, like, how, how broadly does that function? And Jesus' answer is, it functions completely across the board. The love of mammon or money, the, the, the nesting of your heart in your worldly possessions for your worldly life destroys all of your integrity, not just a little bit of it. And the example that he gives is with the Pharisees. Right? Because he says, he says this, he says, the Pharisees who love money heard this and sneered at Jesus. Right? They sneered at him. These are the pastors of their day, right? And so Jesus says, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued, see he's talking about wealth here. What is highly valued among men is detestable to God. You can't value them both. Because what the world will honor you with, with more wealth and position, is, are things that are detestable to God. They won't really go together. You, you won't be able to have integrity and really invest directly, completely to your wealth because you'll have to play games with your integrity that will not allow you to be one thing. And then he says this. 
He says, the law and the, he says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John, and since that time, the good news of the kingdom is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way, way in. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of the pen to drop off, off of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and any man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, why in God's name? Like, we're all feeling pretty good about being attacked about our money. Why make it worse and make everybody who's either divorced, planning a divorce, or might get divorced feel even worse? And what, what on earth, what in God's name is a, is a teaching about divorce doing in this passage? Has, this whole passage has nothing to do with divorce. It's about money and eternal investment and finding the lost and loving the poor. It has nothing to do with divorce. Right? It's just there to make everybody feel uncomfortable and to forget everything else I say today. Right? Because you're hurt and offended for somebody or for yourself, right? But think about it for a minute. The Pharisees who loved money. The Pharisees who loved money. Okay? And they were essentially the pastors of their day. They had congregations, and they, they didn't have the temple worship. That was the Sadducees. They were the ones who exposited or explained how the Word of God worked to people and what it meant to be um, faithful to God. And you want to know what doctrine kills donations at churches more than any other doctrine? Do you know what doctrine sends people with money to other churches? Or out of church altogether? Do you know what kills the bottom line of churches who hold to a particular doctrine? There's one doctrine that stands out from all the others. And it's this one. No, sweetie, you can't get a divorce. <laughs> Listen. Our budget would be at least 40% more than it is right now if I would just tell people they could get divorces. It's almost a weekly gig for me. They come to me, they say, Nick, my spouse sucks. They've been mean to me for years. And I think I've, God has spoken to me, or I just know God wants me to be happy, and I'm getting a divorce. Will you please tell me it's okay? And, um— and I say, Has, have they cheated on you? Like, like what? No, but they're terrible. They're abusing me, you know, in, in the broadest possible definition. And they say, you know, if, you know, if you, God loves me, and if you love me, you defer me. And, and my response to them is, sweetie, I love you. I love you. I, I cannot, I cannot tell God what he doesn't mean. God has been extremely clear about this, and it's because we persuade ourselves of the things you're telling me right now, and because our self-persuasion that we deserve to be happy, and therefore we deserve to be free of this jerk, and be because of all that, we are so convinced that we can do this, and that's one of the reasons why God has been so absolutely adamant that no, you can't. And so you can't divorce your spouse. Now, I'll—we can do church discipline, and I can counsel your spouse, and— the other guys in the church can beat him up, and like, well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of options open to us. You could go to small group regularly, and if you do, all these other marriages around you will help fertilize your marriage, and like, there's marriage counseling, and there's marriage, there's marriage discipleship, and there's, we, you could actually start reading the Bible and praying and growing yourself, and there's so many things that can be done over time if you'll enter in, and it will restore and renew your marriage, and you will Begin to walk in the thing you've never walked in that you've been too afraid to get into up until now. But listen, you can't get divorced. I'm sorry. God has been very, very clear about this, right? And you know what happens when you tell people that? They take their behinds and they take their money and they go somewhere else. 
And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, see, you see, the Pharisees at this time period, they had taken a passage out of Deuteronomy that said, if you find anything indecent in the virgin you have married, you may divorce her, but you have to issue a certificate of divorce. And the rabbinical ruling on that had been that anything that you didn't like about her could be grounds for divorce. Right? In fact, in the rabbinical literature, it said if she burned a dinner and you felt like that was indecent enough, that was sufficient. Right? Now, the word in Hebrew means, in that context, that her being given to you as a virgin, you find out that that's a fraud. That is, she's committed pre-adultery before you enter into the marriage and you didn't know about it. And then you find out after you marry her that that's the case. In that case, you can divorce her, but you have to legally issue a certificate of divorce so that she can marry another person. That's what the passage actually means. That's how Jesus interprets it, and he tells people that on numerous occasions. And he says, listen, the reason you ever thought you could teach that men, you could just divorce your wives for whatever, anything you think is reasonable, has always been because you wanted money. It's always been that. You wanted a bigger church with more people who could give more money. And because you love money, you changed the Word of God. Listen, it is easier, literally, for the earth to melt, for the stars to fall out of the sky, than for one punctuation mark in God's Word to change. You can't change any of it. But you have lost all your integrity because you loved money. Because you fell into the love of mammon, because you weren't really trying to transfer your wealth to another time. You thought you could change the only unchangeable thing. And you've been teaching all these people that they should do whatever they want, and you've been denying them the word of God and the redemption of their lives because you gave them the easy way out, not even because you cared about them empathetically, but because you wanted their cash. How dare you? And it's because if in our faith we are not connected enough to the gospel that everything we do is to convert this worldly wealth into future treasures and friends in heaven, it will destroy our integrity. And it will destroy our integrity in places we never dreamed. It might be our giving, but it might be my willingness to tell you things that are totally wrong or perfectly fine as long as we have an agreement that you'll stay here and keep giving your money, and I'll keep telling you that things that are wrong are right. And we can keep telling each other that even though God's word explicitly says it's not right, that it's okay in your case. Because you're special. And because people have been mean to you. And I mean that for that to be a joke, and I also mean I'm totally in earnest at the same time. And when we, when we embrace our identity as stewards because of faith in Christ as his sons and daughters, we can become free. We can transfer our wealth in joy to future habitations and to friends for eternity, and we can be who we were meant to be, and we can find joy in it that we never sought and we will find ourselves safe in trusting God and trembling at his word and taking his real advice and submitting ourselves to his real commandments and then enjoying all the good fruits of doing so and keeping in step with the Spirit, having our mind transformed in Christ and to have everything that we're meant to have. 
And the result will ultimately be not only our satisfaction in Christ and our future dwellings, but also innumerable people who will come, who had been lost, who will be found, who we're going to celebrate as the end of our service. Let's pray. God, we, um, we pray that you would be with us as we face your hardest truths. And we know that some of the things that you say to us that are very difficult— Um, You don't say just to make our lives difficult, but because you know if you do not tell us these things, we will not know them. Our hearts are too dark to see some of the clearest truths that will save us from ourselves, and we pray that you'd help us to have the grace to accept the truths you want to teach us. We pray that you'd help us to have the kind of faith that really believes in the kingdom of God, that really believes that you will Restore every treasure we transfer into the people that go there, whether poor or lost, or that we transfer it in order to keep the integrity you've called us to have. And we pray, Father, then these things, that you would give us joy now as well as treasure then. And we pray that in all these things that you would take joy and you would treasure them over us. We pray in faith as your treasured sons and daughters. Amen.